This morning we're continuing our sermon series through the book of Job. And you might have noticed already some of the lines, even in the songs, um, are drawn directly from the book. This is the fourth week of ten. So far in the sermon series, we haven't missed reading a verse. Uh, That's going to change this morning. (laughs) The book of Job has 42 chapters. And this is the first sermon where we're going to have to do a good bit of summarizing. In week one, we met Job, this great man from the land of Uz, as we're told. In week two, the bottom fell out in his life. Home and health collapsed as the evil one drew back his bow. In week three, Job's friends arrived, and they sat in silence as Job began his lament. Now, in week four, Job's friends, his comforters, they begin to speak with Job, and it doesn't go well. In fact, in chapter 16, verse 2, Job has this to say, miserable comforters are you all. His friends, his comforters were miserable in Job's estimation, but also, as we'll see later in the sermon, in God's. This morning, we're going to explore some of the things that made them so miserable, but I don't merely want to stay in the land of us. I think God, in giving us this book and in studying it here at our church this fall, he would mean for us to move out into our lives and see not merely how we could be miserable comforters, but how we can be wise comforters. I'm going to read portions of the book of Job in the sermon, but this morning... I'm going to begin by reading one verse from Proverbs. It will be on the screen. It's from chapter 26. And this verse is going to highlight that truth is sharp. It has a point to it. Which means that using truth requires wisdom. If you don't have wisdom as you use truth, you'll hurt yourself and others. Proverbs 26.9 says this, Like a thorn that goes up into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Would you pray with me this morning that God would be our teacher and that he would make us wise? Heavenly Father, that is our prayer this morning. That you would make us the wisest of all people. Even as these Friends of Job were supposed to be wise and helpful to him. We want to actually be wise and helpful. We want to do so all under the banner of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ and the hope of a bright future. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I mentioned at the start that we would not be reading every verse. Now, to understand a little bit more uh, of, of why that is, why we won't be able to read everywhere verse and why we might be summarizing some things, it's helpful to have an awareness now of the structure of the book of Job. The book of Job begins with the account of Job losing nearly everything. And the book of Job ends with nearly everything, in in a sense, maybe even more so, being restored to him. Not maybe, but actually uh, being more so being restored. And between these two bookends in the book, in the middle, people talk. 
And they talk an awful lot. Here's the structure. Job talks. Then friend one talks. Eliphaz. Then Job talks. Then friend two talks. Bildad. And then Job talks. And friend three talks. Zophar. And that structure of Job friend, Job friend, Job friend repeats itself three times between chapters 3 and up until verse, or chapter 32. Almost three times. The last cycle is broken off a little short. But then in chapter 32, this young guy comes in and says, okay, you've heard some wisdom or not heard some wisdom, but I'm going to come in and speak. And he speaks what he has to say. And then when he's done speaking, God talks. Or we could say God asks question after question after question. All that to say, though, there's a lot of talking that takes place in the middle portions of the book. And we'll have several sermons through these cycles and through uh, Elihu, or Elihu, excuse me, uh, this young guy who talks and through what God has to say. But my job this morning is to represent Job's friends and to explore what made them miserable comforters. But before I get into that, I want to say this. When I preached two weeks ago, I covered nearly all of chapters 1 and 2, and just left a little bit at chapter 2 I didn't cover. We saved for the following week. But they were very full chapters. I mean, I feel like I even stretched an extra 10 minutes of how long we normally preach. And even at that, I was barely only able to just observe the things that were going on in the passage, let alone begin to apply it and illustrate it, which are important things to do. I was hoping maybe there'd be more time for that, and I'm just going to take more time for that now. So I want to start with a little story here just to get into how we might understand Job's friends and how they're approaching to him and the state that he's in as they come to him. Several years ago, I got a phone call uh, from my wife, Brooke, who you saw up up here earlier um, as we dedicated our, our youngest child. But I got this phone call from my wife Um, This was before we lived in Harrisburg. At the time, we lived in Tucson, Arizona. And on the call, it was just a short call. After our greeting, Brooke really only asked one question. She said, did you see that our house was listed online? I said, I hadn't. And hung up the phone, and I walked outside where I was at the time. It was winter, and I was in Minneapolis, actually, at a conference. And and I go out, just attending, and I I go out and, and... I uh, confirm a few details, and I make another phone call to the realtor. And, and it's sort of a cliche uh, to talk about feeling um, so bad you, you're going to be sick, like you're going to throw up. I don't mean to be crude, but like it's a cliche a little bit to talk about. That, that's how I felt. But to understand why, I have to go back further. For two years, we had been trying to sell our home. It was a home we didn't even live in anymore. When we had to move or chose to move, it looked like a contract on the home was going to materialize. And as you can tell, it didn't. I moved to work at a church in Tucson. I had asked a friend, uh, hey friend, his name was Nate, would you live in my house for 200 bucks and one-seventh of what it cost to actually own the house um, and and pay the mortgage? I said, hey, would you just mow the yard? Probably you're going to be there a month or two because this is moving this way. Could you just keep it nice while it's on the market? And 18 months later, he was still living there for $200. Our savings were almost gone. One afternoon, I went to CarMax to my Ford Escape and said, hey, could you give me anything for this? I don't know what I'm going to do here. 
found out I'm only, really only going to give me another month or two. And I was like, well, that's not really that helpful. I've got to get a little longer than that, probably. And so we made this whole plan to take our house off the market and put it back on. Because at the time, at least, the rules were such that if you took it off and put it back on, if you waited the right amount of time, then it could go on fresh with, like, the clock zeroed out for, like, why has this house been on the market for a year and no one's bought it? There's something wrong with it, obviously. So you could zero that out if you did that. And so all that back to that phone call from my wife to say this. Um, through a clerical administrative error, the realtor got back to the office and 15 days before it was supposed to go back online, just looked at the stack of papers and started listing homes and put it online without a single picture. And the whole clock didn't restart. <laughs> so we got a home on the market with no pictures and like it's been on there a year and a half and, and we look like idiots. Um... I'm coordinating all of this from 1,600 miles away. And oh, by the way, just before that, uh, that winter my wife had a miscarriage and there were some ongoing complications from that. And oh, by the way, our landlord had just doubled the rent. And oh, by the way, the job that seemed so stable when I moved into that city didn't feel as stable anymore. It felt like the ground under my feet was shifting. And I don't say that to say that, you know, if you've gone through significant suffering in your life, I know exactly what it's talking about. I, I don't know. And I'm certainly not saying that to put myself on par with Job. I think we're supposed to compare and rank suffering. But I think about it like this, like an A-frame ladder. Like, okay, you open up an A-frame ladder, right? Now, I know people fall off of ladders from time to time, but, but generally speaking, an A-frame ladder is sturdy. Like, it's got a wide base and a low center of gravity. You can kind of even bump it, right? And it's, 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 it's going to be okay. But if you flip that ladder upside down and stand it on the top little platform, all of a sudden, it doesn't take much of a bump and with a high center of gravity and a small base, and that thing's going to fall. It's unstable. I felt like in my life everything had been flipped upside down. And if someone had only come to me in that season and whispered that this is all your fault, I might have toppled over. Now think about Job. He's been honoring God, following him as best as he knows how. His life has become unstable for reasons he doesn't understand. And if someone only hints to him that this is his fault, he might just topple over. And you remember what Jason said last week, if you were here. These are not just any friends that come to Job. The narrator, by the way he introduces them and the cities and the, the, the regions they're from, he's subtly flagging that these are supposed to be wise individuals. They're from places noted for their wisdom. It's like having grief counselors come visit you from Harvard, Princeton, and Yale, as Jason said. And the wisdom of the world that is on offer before Job is miserable. We'll spend a few minutes now getting into this passage and talking about what made it so miserable. The first thing that makes these comforters so miserable is that they confuse a proverb and a promise. Both Proverbs and promises are wonderful things. The Bible has many of these, many, many Proverbs and promises, but they're different things, and they shouldn't be confused. Let me read a portion of chapter 18 to show you what I mean. 
This is Bildad speaking right about in the middle of the second cycle of conversations. This comes from chapter 18. I'm going to read uh, the first line and then 5 through 9 and then 19 through 21. Then Bildad the Shuite answered and said to Job, Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out. The flame of the wicked person's fire does not shine. The light in the dark, excuse me, the light is dark in the wicked person's tent. The wicked person's lamp above him is put out. The wicked person's strong steps are shortened, and his own schemes throw him down. For he, and you see the pronouns, what I was trying to do there is fill in. He just keeps saying he or him, his, but he's always saying the wicked person's. Verse 8, for he, the wicked person, is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel. A snare lays hold of the wicked person. Coming down to verse 19, he goes on all through that time. The wicked person has no posterity or progeny among his people. That's a loaded phrase when you're talking to Job. And no survivor where he used to live. They of the west are appalled at his day, and horror seizes them of the east. Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. How would you summarize these words? I might summarize them this way. Cheaters never win. They always get what they deserve. What Bildad says here is true as a proverb. A proverb, biblically speaking, is a statement about how God has generally set up the world. There are short statements that are designed to be memorable. Cheaters never win. And because they are designed to be memorable, they do not have all the necessary qualifications and disclaimers. If you clutter up a proverb with disclaimers and qualifications, you lose the memorableness of it. So if you say, many hands make light work, but not if the room is small and everyone is bumping into each other. Right? Like, you start doing that and like, okay, it's not memorable anymore. Handling of Proverbs rightly means having wisdom to know their limitations. Yes, as Bildad says, most of the time when wicked people use wicked means to get ahead in life, they are crushed in their own devices. But if we could speak with Bildad, if we could pull him aside, if we tell him to take that post off of social media just for a minute, and we could say this, Bildad, is that true all of the time? Do you mean to tell me that this general truth that you observed about the world is true always? Do you mean to tell me that a wicked person has never gone free, has never gotten ahead in life? No, Bill, that of course they do. Sometimes the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. I'm just picking one example here. But many could be pointed out from the book of Job. As you read these friends' speeches, this confusion is never far from the things they're saying. Let me put it another way. What makes these comforters miserable, what makes a miserable comforter is to believe that sin and suffering are in a relationship and that relationship is a one-to-one relationship. 
You'll be a miserable comforter if you believe that if someone does something wrong, God will always punish them swiftly. And to be a miserable comforter is to believe that prosperity and righteousness are in a one-to-one relationship. If you do something right, God will reward you always. Let me make it more personal. I want to read Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, be on the screen, and then ask a question. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. It's relevant for this morning, isn't it? Is that a proverb or a promise? Is God saying that wisdom seeks to train up children in the fear and admonition of the Lord? And generally speaking, when patterns of godliness are ingrained early in life and children taste and see the goodness of the Lord, generally speaking, when they have authentic relationships before God, modeled before them as they're growing up, then generally speaking, when these children are older, children will not depart from such a beautiful life. Or, is this verse saying that if you do everything right as a parent, then your children will always become good Christians. And if you don't do everything right, then your children will end up hating God. Which is it? Train up a child in the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it, is a proverb. It's not a promise. It's a general truth about how God has set up the world, namely as a cause and effect world. Good causes, generally speaking, produce good effects. But that proverb starts to fall apart when you treat it as a promise. And when this verse is treated as a promise, much confusion and misery follow. When Job's friends do something similar with their Proverbs, it certainly adds to Job's misery. Let me go to the next point here and talk about the other things that make these miserable, these comforters miserable. The other thing that makes a miserable comforter is speaking beyond what can be known. Job's friends are so committed to their one-to-one view of the world. Sin leads to suffering. Righteousness leads to prosperity, always. That they don't know what to do with Job while he's suffering, except to say that there must be some secret sin in Job's life. Let me show you two examples, one from chapter 8 and then the other from chapter 22. The first comes again from Bildad. This is from his opening speech, verses 1 through 4 in chapter 8. Then Bildad the Shuite answered and said to Job, How long will you say these things? And the words of your mouth be a great wind. Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Just let that sit on you for a minute, what they just said to him. In verse 2, he says, Your words are nothing more than hot air, Job. In verse 4, he says, Job, the reason your children are dead is because of their sin. 
A miserable comforter today might say, the reason your kidneys failed, the reason you have cancer, the reason you didn't sell your house, the reason your child dies of SIDS is because you're a sinner. Not a general sinner the way we all are, but a particular sinner that deserved a particular punishment. Do you see why they're miserable? Bildad doesn't know what he's talking about. The wisdom of the world wasn't in the secret council room of God back in chapters 1 and 2. Now look at Job 22. We read verse 1, 5 through 10, and then down in verse 21. This is in the final cycle of conversations. This is Eliphaz. This is how his third speech to Job begins. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, coming down to verse 5, Is not your evil abundant, Job? There is no end to your iniquities. For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink and you have withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land and the favored man lived in it. You have sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore, snares are all around you, and sudden terror overwhelms you. Down to verse 21. Agree with God, and be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. Every word of that is a lie. In Eliphaz's first speech in chapter 4, verses 3 through 6, they concede that, Job, you, you seem to be a righteous man. And then all of his friends start dancing around this giant elephant they believe to be in the room. Namely, that Job is a wicked sinner, and if only he would come to his senses and repent, God would restore him. The whole time, they're wondering, kind of hinting around this, and, and just asking it kind of in rhetorical questions, and they're just waiting. Will someone just say this outright to Job? Finally, Eliphaz takes the baton. Do you notice that line in verse 9? It says something about widows. Eliphaz says that in Job's prior life, he, quote, sent widows away empty. I take this to mean that Job got his wealth by being a wicked miser. You know, one of the reasons I spent so much time just observing chapters 1 and 2 a few weeks ago was for this moment right here. The narrator called Job blameless. God called Job blameless several times over. And it seems, even though he hates it, Satan had to acknowledge it. But here, these miserable comforters reinterpret the backstory of Job's life. They speak beyond what they can know. This is one reason why Job is so exasperated by the time you come to the end of the book. He seems he does get toppled over, at least in some ways. Not at all. In chapter 29, in Job's final appeal, he has this to say, that in his former life, he, quote, caused the widow's heart to sing for joy, verse 13. This is quite the contrast to what his friends said of him. But I'm inclined to agree with what Job says, because it's the same thing God said. At least implied with that general what description of Job's life. To go back to my ladder metaphor, Job has been turned upside down. His center of gravity has moved up high and his base has shrunk. He's wobbly. He's unstable. And the wisdom of the world comes along and says it's your fault. 
Let me briefly, this will be brief, mention the final thing that makes them miserable. It's the thing that God actually mentions at the end of the book. So I'm going to leap over to the very end and we'll kind of plot our way through this book and we'll come to the end, more towards the end, but I want to grab a verse from the end now. Chapter 42, verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. And it goes on and there's a way of forgiveness for them. Though it comes through the costly means of Job swallowing an awful lot. But God looks through all the aspects of these friends and what the things that made them miserable. Some of the things I pointed out and others I didn't have time for. Maybe I'm not even aware of if I study it longer and for another 10 years I'd learn more ways. But, but God looks through all of these ways and he goes straight at this. The main issue is that they were not speaking right of me, says God. Don't miss this. What you believe about God is eminently practical for your life. And when you're comforting others, and so many applications could be made. If you want to be a wise friend and a wise counselor, soak in good theology. One of the reasons we give huge portions of our service to studying the book that God wrote is so that we would spend our lives, not just on Sundays, But just sort of Sundays as an appetizer that leads us into lives that feast upon the wisdom of God. When we do this, I want to, the reason we're giving 10 weeks to this book is so that we would build into our DNA as a church. So that we would become the type of people that when we have those around us who are suffering, we could be a help to them. Don't you want that? Don't you want that for yourself? It's our aim to seek to widen people's base, widen their trust in God, lower their center of gravity deep into the promises of the gospel, so to speak. And when we don't know what to say, we don't know something, we just say we don't know. We need to look people in the eyes when they cry and we cry with them and say, I don't know why this strange providence is happening to you. But let me help you hold on to God even as I know he'll hold on to you. Jason mentioned last week so many very practical things regarding effort to help those who are suffering. People are suffering. We write cards. We bake meals. We mow the yard. Maybe more apropos, we rake leaves, right? Clean bathrooms. We show up. We talk for a bit and we leave. We show up and we talk for a bit and we leave. And with our words, we point people to the goodness and the grace of God. Though it can be difficult to see when the storm is blowing. Speaking of the goodness of God, I want to close by talking about that. There's a saying that goes around these days. Um, that escalated quickly. right? You sort of said as a, uh, mockingly. We usually say when we observe someone uh, do something way out of proportion. Uh, you know, I mean, so someone wakes up, or I don't know what, stubs their toe, they kick the nightstand, and they're like, oh, woe to you, nightstand, you know? Curse the tree that bore you. Um, 
You're like, wow, that escalated quickly. Um, When God says that Job's friends have spoken about him wrongly, God did not escalate quickly. And when he did, it wasn't out of proportion. The Lord is slow to anger. God listened to their hot air for chapter after chapter after chapter until finally he says, enough. Because of God's great love for Job, because of God's great love for these friends, because of God's great love for his own glory and reputation, he says, enough. And sometimes when Christians talk about the book of Job, we get so focused on the things that happen in chapters 1 and 2, the sin and the suffering and the conversation with Satan and how God fits into all of those things, through these things, under these things, over these things. When we do that, which are right, there's, a, there's, a, there's worth that time. But when we do that, we can miss that God has given us this book to make us wise. The book of Job is part of what are called the wisdom books in the Bible. There are those books especially given by God to make his people wise. I mean, think about that. God loves you so much that not only does he send the Savior, Jesus Christ, to live on earth perfectly, die in our place for our sins, rise again on the third day, ascend into heaven, sit in heaven where we await his glorious second coming. Not only has God done all of that, but he loves you so much that while we wait for him, he longs to make us wise so that we would make the best use of this time. We can get so focused on chapters 1 and 2 that God has given this, this book Probably should have titled not how to be a miserable comforter, but how not to be a miserable comforter. That's what we really want to know, isn't it? That may feel like a small thing, but I can tell you story after story of Christians I know who had some other well-meaning Christian come up to them and say to him or her, in essence, this is your fault. And if you just had enough faith, your circumstances would be different. Story after story after story. And I haven't been in ministry that long. God loves us so much that his salvation includes the desire to make us wise. Be careful with your words, Christians. There was an article on a website a few years ago called What Grieving People Wish You Knew at Christmas. It was by Nancy Gunthrie. It's a short article, came out just four days before Christmas in 2016. Now, it's my guess, I'd just be guessing here because I don't, I don't know, I don't have these stats, but it would seem that articles on this website get shared uh, maybe 1,000, maybe 3,000 times, kind of an average article. A good article might get 10,000 shares, maybe a great one, a popular one gets 30, maybe even 50,000 shares. And this article, written by a thoughtful Christian, to give other Christians wisdom to how to relate to the people that are suffering around him, was shared 1.3 million times. (laughs) Most of them in the first few days. It's the most shared article of all time on Desiring God's website. What grieving people wish you knew at Christmas. We are hungry for wisdom, especially when we're grieving. 
I talked at the beginning about not confusing a proverb and a promise. Let me close with a promise. A promise from Jesus. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. He tells us and he tells, he tells them, he tells us this. I have said these things to you. That in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. That's a promise. This world is broken. The world's going to be remade. And I'm the bridge between them. And take heart because the bridge is sturdy. It's stable. Walk on me. No matter what happens in your life, whether it's your fault or not, if you're trusting Christ, Christ will hold you. Take that to heart this morning, Christian. Invite the worship team to come back up and close us in one more song. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, I know what it's like to feel like the earth is moving beneath my feet. And I know it's always moving. I don't mean that. I'm thankful most of life has not been lived that way for me. But I do pray for those that are here that are feel that now. And I pray that as a church, we would be wise and comforting. Think of the words of the Apostle Paul. With the comfort we have received in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we comfort others. Lord Jesus Christ, would you make us those kind of wise comforters? We pray this in Jesus' name.